The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. John 1.14 to consider on this Christmas Eve. I read it from the New International Version. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. There are some texts of Scripture that are so familiar that it is very difficult indeed to experience the meaning of them to really weigh and evaluate them the way they should be considered for the tremendous thrust of importance that is in them. This is a very short verse, John 1.14, but that's only when measured by the actual span of its words. It's very long on content and very high and very deep in the profundity of things it speaks about. A record survives from a man in the second or third century. His name was Junius the Younger. He became a Christian convert, but he wasn't early on in his life. He was a Roman citizen, and somehow through young adulthood he had acquired a lot of learning and had read a lot of philosophy and great texts and things from the ancients that were very wise and profound. But he had not confronted Christianity. And then someone gave him to be able to read the opening of the Gospel of John. And Junius, who, as I said, later became not only a Christian, but actually a theologian of sorts, had this comment of his reaction to the striking things that he read here in this chapter. He said, I instantly was struck with the divinity of the argument and the majesty and authority of this whole idea of the Word became flesh. In fact, he wrote, my mind and my body shuddered. I had never heard anything like this. I was actually amazed and agitated by this concept being so unlike anything I had ever heard before, it seemed absurd to me. And yet at the deepest level of my being, I quickly knew it must be true. On this Christmas Eve, I offer you John 1.14 as being very much like an arrow shot directly at the bullseye of what God was doing at Christmas in the miracle of his son being born into human history. He brought us this one, the word became flesh, choosing to dwell among us and allowing us to see his glory, glory as of the one and only 
who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. I have two points to give you tonight, and the first is to say this as a header to it, that in Jesus Christ, two opposite worlds are being supremely united. Two opposite worlds being united. I only noticed it tonight as we were singing in the first service, the line in the carol, the first Noel, in the last verse, let us sing praises to our heavenly Lord that hath made heaven and earth of naught. I believe what the hymn writer was saying there is that in Jesus Christ, any line or boundary of demarcation between heaven and earth disappeared because he was the one who dwelt in both of these realms. The first realm of Christ's dwelling is indicated by that tremendous term, the Word, that we face in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we considered that together as a congregation, this statement right out of the gate, the first thing that John writes about under influence of the Holy Spirit is that Christ had pre-existent glory, that he did not begin in Bethlehem. He began far back in a beginning that couldn't be traced at all, as one present at the creation, as one who was with the Father and was one with the Father, and then came into this natural world from the supernatural world. He became visible having been invisible. He came from far away and drew very near. And he came into time, having inhabited eternity. He came from the world of God's own dwelling because he was God. 1 Timothy 3.16 has the statement, Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. Well said. Mystery is what it's all about. We don't pretend to be able to explain this. But it is declared. Christ made the boundary line between heaven and earth disappear in his one person. You could say he had one foot in each world. Now, contrasting with the Word and the heavenly realm is this very blunt term, flesh. The Word became flesh. I don't think we need to have that term explained to us. Flesh certainly means life in a mortal body. Life with a beating heart. A body susceptible to illness and pain and weakness and heartbreak and disappointment and cancer and death. Now that was something that Jesus, of course, did not experience before. When you speak about bodies of flesh, you're talking about something you know too well. A body requires sleep and food and a daily shower and eventually braces on the teeth and hearing aids in the ears and canes and walkers to get about in and knee joints replaced. Bodies are inconvenient, to say the least. God has no body. God has no fingers or lungs or legs. He does not perspire. He doesn't get hungry. He never requires surgery. He doesn't get a headache or the flu. He doesn't need a flu shot. 
here comes Jesus from the realm of the eternal to live in a body. This is completely new. Two worlds that are polar opposites coming together, being united, and merging in this person. The Word became flesh, and he dwelt among us. The commentators love to point out the Greek word for to dwell is a word that actually says he pitched his tent in our midst. A tent, of course, is insubstantial. It's not a hardy brick residence. It's something you live in very temporarily. Many would see theological richness in that idea going back to the Old Testament when Moses was instructed to build a particular tent in the Exodus wandering, a tent that we know as the tabernacle, the meeting place where Israel was to come and her priests would lead them and they would literally meet with God. Now, it was, a, it was a fairly grandiose tent. It was a large tent, but it was still just a tent made of skins and cloth and poles, but it was a place where sim- both symbolically and really the people would actually pray, bring sacrifices, and meet with God. Many would say that was a prefiguring. That tent pitched in the wilderness was a prefiguring, a symbol of Jesus pitching his tent in a human body and dwelling among us as the very presence of God. Now, of course, not all people believe this. And there are those who would skirt around it or try to explain it away, and there have been such people from earliest times. There were all kinds of controversies in the early church days over how could Jesus be divine and human? Was he a little bit divine and mostly human or, or mostly divine and a little bit human? Was he actually human at all? People called docetists formed a group who said, well, he just appeared to be human. Dokeo is the word to appear or to seem. And the docetists said, oh, well, we understand it. Jesus was a kind of a phantom. If you had walked up to him as a living fleshly person and sort of poked him in the arm with your fingers, your fingers would have gone right through him because he wasn't solid. He wasn't made of atoms like you are. He was an apparition of a man, not a fleshly man. Well, the church didn't have too much trouble declaring the docetists to be heretics on the basis of 1 John 4, 2 alone, which says every spirit that says Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus come in the flesh is not from God. It is the spirit of Antichrist. You see, people want to get an easy way out. It's, it's too hard for them to say both things are true. He's God and man. He's, he's dwelling in two worlds and bringing the two together. But that is certainly the orthodox confession of churches of every stripe and denomination and what the Scripture says. Two opposite worlds were merged in one in the very person of Jesus Christ, the only begotten. I think it's quite accurate what the New International Version did with that expression, saying the one and only. Nobody else ever brought those two things together in that way. Two natures remaining distinct. One nature didn't swallow up the other, you see. The human didn't swallow the divine. The divine didn't swallow the human. It wasn't split personality. He wasn't divine on Monday and human on Tuesday. He was all of God 
and all of man at the same time. The God-man, we call him. His divinity was, was veiled. Much of the time, people would have said, well, what kind of a God is this? He, he got hungry in the desert. He was starving and underwent temptation. How could he be the powerful God? Well, he chose that. He chose to do that. There were times when the veil was pulled back and we saw parts of his divine nature and he said things and a man couldn't have known or predicted things that were wonderful that could only have come. And and there's that time on the Mount of Transfiguration when the disciples beheld him and and seemed to see the appearance of Moses and Elijah with him and he was shining bright in his garments. It would seem like the curtains were parted there. But for most of the time, he, he let his divine powers take a back seat, although he never lost them. He chose not to use them much of the time. 500 years after the time of Christ, Augustine wrote this. I really think he got at it quite well, as he did with so many things. Augustine said, man's maker, capital M, became man. So the ruler of the stars might nurse at his mother's breast. So the bread of life might know hunger. So that he who is the way, capital W, might know what it was to grow tired on a journey. So that the one who is universal truth with a capital T might be accused by false witnesses. And so that the source of all life might be able to die. That's the great mystery that's being stated in the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In one person, Jesus Christ, we meet the incomparable union of two opposing worlds. Now, secondly, I ask you to consider the remaining words of the verse that say, we have seen his glory, and it is glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And people might well ask the question, well, what does glory look like? I don't know if I'd know glory if I saw it. And how can I, in the 21st century, see the glory of a man who's been gone from this earth as far as a visible presence for 20 plus centuries? How can Christ's glory be known by us? Well, our text says there are two main exhibitions of his glory, and let me just make some suggestions about each of them. We see his grace, and we see his truth. When Jesus came forth from the halls of eternity to appear in this world in a cow stall, a stall that, by the way, most scholars think was in a cave, the region of Bethlehem is riddled with caves, and they use those for barns or storage of grain and keep the animals out of the weather and so on. Why build a building if you've got a cave? And I think it's quite possible that it was one of those caves where he was born. What an ignominious place. Not a nice Pennsylvania Dutch barn that's almost a work of art to delight the eye. A dirty cave. Maybe somebody hadn't even mucked it out very well that day. God came and showed his grace Because there was no logical necessity for him to come to a place like that. There was no logical necessity compelling God to come to earth in the first place. Grace is that being done which is not necessary and is beyond and above in blessing 
what anybody deserves. By what reason of logic could you ever compel God and say, you owe it to us to send Jesus to earth? (laughs) You read the Bible, friends. God owes us his wrath because of our rebellion and our stubbornness and our ways of ignoring him and turning from him. But he shows grace instead by doing what it not only is not necessary, but what is abundantly beyond what anybody could imagine him doing. And then you look at the life of Jesus and you see it full of graciousness. Graciousness in his character. You know, people, when they heard him speak, said, we never heard anybody speak like this. They meant not only the content of what he was saying, but the authority in his voice, the humility about it, the power about it, the unique way he was speaking about God. There was a wonderful meekness And that's a word we don't understand very well. We think meekness means letting people run over you. Meekness in Jesus meant something more like holding back. The most tremendous power and authority and wisdom in him, and yet he restrained it. And people knew that somehow. That he could have struck them with his righteous anger had he wanted to, but he saved that righteous anger only for the hypocrites and the fools who challenged him. For the people who were broken and hurting and who had lost their way, to them he was condescending and kind and receptive. This great power stooping down to serve. In the earlier service, I know you didn't hear the message I did, but we had a fine message from Pastor York about one who could be king forever And Christ, he said, was qualified to be king forever because he was a king who served. How many national leaders have you seen lately, in your lifetime for that matter, who really served their people, for whom the main characteristic of their life and their administration was self-giving, stooping, putting themselves last, and serving their constituents? I'll be glad for you to give me a list of those folks after the service, and we'll see if we can get a presidential candidate together for the next time around, if there is one. Greatness is never so gracious and so winsome when it sets down its own prerogatives and serves. And that's what Jesus did. Grace oozed out of his life in the lowliness of this high person who simply gave himself and became what some have called the man for others. But then, too, Jesus exhibited truth besides grace. Now you say, well, how is that? What are you speaking about when you say truth? Well, I think we could go down several avenues with this, but I'll just restrain myself to one and say that truth was evident in the life of Jesus in all the earthy historical details by which what God was doing and saying could be exhibited and seen and proved through the nitty-gritty, down-to-earth details of historical witness. In other words, Jesus is not somebody who came in the wispiness of mythology or the nicely written fiction of people's great legends. Mythology and legends are worthwhile in their own sphere. Just don't confuse them with actual history. 
But God worked hard to make sure we wouldn't confuse the narrative of Jesus Christ with mythology and legend. And the way he did it was by pinning it to all of these tie-down points of actual history. Joseph going to answer a tax census of all things. You don't get much more mundane than that. Herod the Great being the verifiable ruler of that time. A cruel, remarkably selfish, murderous man who killed his own children, fearing they would take his throne. And we know about Herod. We can find Herod in the history books. And Jesus intersected with Herod. In fact, Herod tried to murder him and killed a dozen or two babies instead. Caiaphas, the high priest of the temple, history tells us about him. He's perfectly verifiable outside the Bible. Pontius Pilate, you see, Why is it we say the Apostles' Creed and the only human name in it beyond the name of Jesus is Pontius Pilate? He suffered under Pontius Pilate. Do you ever wonder why we say that? We say that because we're telling you Jesus suffered and died at a particular moment in history that can be verified under a particular administration of a particular empire with a particular ruler in place. He died a man of history. And so his death represents truth. It could have been verified. It could have been reported on Fox News or NBC or CNN had they had those instruments in that day. And so this tells us, too, that the whole goal towards which the life of Jesus was moving, which we know is the cross of Calvary, that that, too, is history. That isn't some remarkable story of a God sacrificing himself for people, unlike any other myth that ever came along. It isn't some philosopher's speculative theory. It is something that was accomplished in a particular year A.D. on a particular hill outside a particular city, Jerusalem, as men took the word who became flesh And they took that flesh, which we love to romanticize because it was a little baby's wonderful. Have you felt a little baby lately? Got a new grandchild. They're the softest things in the whole world. That little baby's flesh. You know what they did with it? They took the Roman catanine tails with pieces of glass and metal tied to the ends of the thongs and they administered to 39 lashes and tore him to pieces, his flesh. But you see, the word became flesh, so that could happen. God planned that to happen because the cross of Calvary was the goal, the destination the apex of the word becoming flesh. He was born to die. And folks, you've got to have a glimpse of Calvary in your Christmas or you just don't understand what it's all about. It wasn't just the the dewy-eyed romanticism of a baby in a stall laying in straw. It was a man destined to die. He was given a body so he could die. And he died in history. And he died for the glory of God. And Paul wrote, 
God forbid that I should glory in anything save in the death of Christ Jesus my Lord who was crucified for me. So I ask you in conclusion on this Christmas Eve, did this one called the Word become flesh? Well, since we know he did, he's the qualified Savior to whom we can cling in faith and adoration and look to him to have brought us a historic atonement and reconciling peace with God through that death that he died. Did this word really become flesh? Well, the Scripture says he absolutely did. And if that's true, and we know it is, then he's one who can be touched with every one of our weaknesses and our temptations. He went through them. He didn't sin by going through them, but he experienced them all. Did the Word become flesh? If he had a mortal body, then that says something. Even our physical bodies have more dignity than we think they do. You see, we tend to wallow in this world of of bodies and and what happens. We're given over to that which stimulates the body. So the world slides towards alcoholism and towards drug use and towards unbridled sexuality and getting your way by violence and everything that's just in that flesh world. But you see, if the Son of the Highest came and took a body like ours, that says our bodies have dignity. And they can be treated with a different dignity than you and I perhaps thought they could because one day God is going to raise these bodies and glorify them to be like the body of Christ. Did the Word become flesh? I say based on the certainty that he did, We know that Christ who went into heaven took his humanity with him. Did you understand that? When you study the ascension of Christ? You know, it wasn't just God on high, Christ in some spirit being who came to earth, got a body, kept it for 33 years, and then shed it and returned to heaven and now is an invisible spirit. That is not the teaching of the Bible. The teaching of the Bible is that Jesus Christ today is glorified man at the right hand of his Father. We believe it's an accurate understanding that when we behold him, we will behold hands that are wounded. He bears his humanity in his glorified being today and is ready to greet the sons and daughters of this earth when they appear before him one day. In his wonderful name, ladies and gentlemen, I bid you the blessed peace of Christmas. Our Father, may we like Mary go from here tonight pondering, pondering something that's so much bigger than us. It's mysterious. Our science can't conquer it. Our minds cannot completely wrap around it, and yet it was a drama acted out on the pages of real history. And so we venture our trust and our faith and our adoration for the Word who became flesh. Thank you, O God, for merging heaven and earth in this one great man, Jesus Christ. Amen.